0: Hey folks, um, it's me, Scott. Uh, I know I haven't been very regular with my uh, podcast lately, and I think some of you know why. Some of you might not know why because I don't talk on social media about things a lot. But I am—I've uh, moved down to Huntsville, and I am currently in the worst Airbnb in the entire world, and I have like almost dial up internet. It's, it's, it's technically broadband, but I don't have enough upload or download to actually talk to somebody online like I normally do. And so here I am back to the old days where I do stuff over the phone. So, and that's okay, because I don't have to worry about what I look like, I don't have to worry about (laughs) anything uh, other than just talking to the great comedian that I'm going to be talking to tonight. And I have to say one good thing about moving to Huntsville is I've I've met a few comics down here, but uh, I met uh, a a guy who knows a lot about comedy and is a comedian named Matthew Tate, and I'm sitting uh, outside at one of the new breweries, Called Boulder Hat Brewery. Uh, talking to him one night, and I was just grilling him over what comics I should know, who who should I know, and who should I uh, be listening to. And the first guy he mentioned was Sean White, and I've got Sean here today. And Sean has uh, a couple different albums out that uh, have gotten quite a bit of buzz, and. I, we're gonna get in we're gonna get into those albums, um, but um, I'm gonna get into his style of comedy a little bit more and where he's gone because he's been uh, a few different places. But uh, you know, Sean has a definite um, uh, unique style, and when I listened to the first album that um i gotta pull it up on spotify because i can never remember names so i listened to angry and alone first and then i listened to the first one which was what was that one called sean dead and gone dead and gone uh then i listened to dead and gone and uh was just absolutely taken in by uh not only his uh joke writing ability but his style so um with uh, no further ado here's Sean white Sean thank you for being on the show
1: of course thank you very much and uh thank you for uh living in my my hometown yeah I guess <laughs> uh, I mean you know one one person out one person in I suppose
0: yeah uh, yeah I
1: didn't- really think of the city as a thunderdome but i suppose that works
0: and it's it's quite a bit uh, there's a quite a bit older gentleman that uh, took your place so you, so, so you don't have to worry about me procreating and uh bringing any more hands so that's a good oh, thank
1: thing god i was worried about that they, they, you know they always have to change the sign at the outskirts of town that pisses everybody off
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think I uh, was, uh, I had my vasectomy probably when you were still in grade school, so I think we're good to go. <laughs> but Well, uh, also,
1: there's one thing you should know. Uh, for a day, one time, uh, Huntsville actually changed its name to Enterprise Alabama. As oh. part of a, a like a, a Star Trek Day or Sci-Fi Con or something like that that they were celebrating so uh-huh. back in the 70s. So they actually did change their name to Enterprise uh, just once. Yeah. But it actually, it could be, it used to be kind of a, a cool, weird weird town, but it's changed a lot and has now changed back around. Yeah. Uh, Been a very different city than I remember it. Uh, Actually, I'm I'm really glad you're actually able to go to a comedy show, yeah, (laughs) and to be able to do that kind of a thing because that kind of stuff didn't, you know, didn't even remotely exist back then. Back back when I first started, like 15 years ago, uh, in uh, Statesboro, Georgia, when I was going to college at uh, Georgia Southern, uh, you had to drive the three and a half hours up to uh, Atlanta to be able to even do an open mic or anything. Yeah. that was pretty much there there wasn't too much unless you set it up yourself there was a circuit but it was not the kind of thing that an open micer or something like that could ever break into now there's actually like a scene where people can go places like like epic comedy hour and some other things that have really helped but uh you know Huntsville's kind of uh, at least having a destination for some things right uh being i think the first comedian from that city outside of maybe my um uh, I think my cousin, my cousin once a group, so one generation above me, uh, Carrie White. He's uh-huh. uh he used to be uh, headlining the Memphis uh, comedy festival every single year. He's he's all retired now and everything like that, but he used to do that back in the I think the eighties and nineties and stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's actually right as of last week, there are open nights or open mics uh, Sunday through Wednesday here, so. Uh, That's-
1: that's just, that's fantastic to be able to hear. It's just the uh, town's completely changed back from when I used to walk up to Dr. Bob's video game shop uh, over, they uh, used to live off Randall Road near uh, where, near off the Parkway where the, where the checkers was. Uh, from the Schlossky's and It's like, I'm getting uh, too local. This is, <laughs> this I, I, a, a, a I know exactly
0: much. where Schlossky's is. Even though I'm new here, I, I've driven past Schlossky's plenty of times, so I know exactly where you my, my grandmother
1: about. got fired from that Schlossky's. It's, uh, it's a very, very, very good place. Yeah. Uh, they, they understand <laughs> evil when they see it, and they don't want it in their sandwiches. Despite being the relocation home for all of Project Paperclip, by God, those sandwiches weren't going to be evil. Uh, which I was actually surprised, given that it's you know like where they moved all the Nazis and everything like that and there's even like a statue to you know Werner von Braun who's in the fucking SS yeah like the fact that there's even all that stuff there right and it's uh all, all that stuff you know, you know it's weird only there's only one German restaurant in all down. town
2: yeah yeah
1: that was the weirdest thing that they didn't bother even trying to like they opened one German restaurant in this weird little plaza that was like nice but that was the only yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't bother going too far out with it that was the only thing the Germans were like alright I don't we don't need to be that obvious. Let's keep the sauerkraut to a little bit of a minimum.
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you something about this shit hole Airbnb I'm in. It's uh, it's in Five Points, and it's in the historic area. Um, however— Oh,
1: there's the, do they still have little Zestos there?
0: Yeah, it is still there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, God. Hamburger on a stick being the only thing that that city invented uh, yeah. culinary-wise.
0: <laughs> I haven't had it, but I've seen the storefront. It's, but, a, it's a grease bomb. Yeah. But the first thing you walk in when you walk, when you walk into my, the first thing you see when you walk into my Airbnb is a picture that says Huntsville, the Rocket City, and it's got a picture of Warner Von Braun. <laughs> and then this son of a bitch that owns this for some reason has these communist uh, nesting dolls uh, with, with all these terrible like Lenin and stuff shit. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on here, but I I do know that this place is evil, and it's trying to kill me. So
1: well, I, it, it feels it, it feels like someone just like a like a, a local like barbecue or chilies or someplace like that went out of business and he bought all the shit off the walls.
0: Yeah, it could be. It could be. It's. Uh, it, it, yeah. If like you start
1: it, seeing license plates from every state, that's when you know you got you got a problem. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody using license plates as art or empty liquor bottles? Yeah. That's that's an immediate get out of there.
0: Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) But let's talk about you, shall we? Um the I was totally enamored with uh your albums, and then I I had to see you I had to see your persona, so I, I looked you up on YouTube too. And you are one of these deceptively um, aged folks because I can't tell if you are like 28 or if you're 44 um, because you're you're very young looking, but you are old acting and sounding. So I I can't get that. How old are you?
1: I am 38 right now.
0: All right. Well, right. I split it right down the middle. So.
1: <laughs> well the thing is uh you get a lot of a uh, lot of experience at age a little bit more but also everybody in my i, don't know, I guess everybody in my family i kind of had the same thing where people always thought you were older than you are so yeah. like but i've also uh, always looked young so i've always had like a baby everywhere like, we always had like baby face but with a older attitude right, right um and it's always just kind of been that way i guess uh i used to Hide my accent when I performed, like mm-hmm. you know, long time, long, long time ago, before the the albums and stuff, because I thought like people would judge you for sounding a certain way and things like that. And then I find there's a certain point when my family started dying, and I just went, "Fuck it," and just let go. <laughs> started talking like myself. Like, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. They're gonna judge it. Who cares? You're already talking about stuff that I want to hear anyways. Yes. Might as well say it in a way that in a way that's true.
0: Right, right, no doubt. And one of the things uh, one of the things I'm not going to do is dwell on dead and gone, because I know that that's a that's a few years ago. But one of the things I noticed about that album and also the uh, angry and alone, angry and alone, angry and alone um, is you've got okay, you've got this angry persona. Um, where you talk about anger management, you talk about the things that happen in your life, the divorce and everything like that. And yet you, you don't say it in as a matter of fact type way and you don't say it angry either. There's, there, there's a tinge of anger in your delivery and yet it doesn't take you over. It, it's not like a Sam Kinnison screaming at the microphone type thing.
1: And, well that's something that'll tell people will tell you um uh when you do it like sam Kettison, it becomes part of the the gimmick or something like uh-huh. that and realistically you know like uh, not to the, without the highs uh the highs don't mean anything if there aren't lows right so you have to make sure that you purposely incorporate a lot of lows and practice you know like there's an old theater game where uh, you practice asking somebody to hand you a cup But you have to use different words and gestures every single time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, you can't like, you have to ask them 10 different times to hand you a cup, but without ever saying the same, repeating a single word. And that includes even a word like A or B or anything like that. Uh Like you can't use anything the same. And you have to try to vary how you say it. And so just learning how to say things in different ways. And that's something that people, when when I would get too angry, people, I remember one person, uh, a friend of a friend was like, "I don't She just watched the video. And she like, "I don't like it when you yell that much." And it's like, "Well, because it doesn't. It just all comes off as yelling and triggering and things like that if you keep it up too much." So you have to, and but it also helps me learn to deal with those feelings uh-huh. by forcing myself to learn how to talk about that, a thing that does make me angry without screaming it. Mm-hmm. But because also, some Kurt Vonnegut said in like one of his books was like, uh, uh, "People will use any excuse not." to listen to you. Right. That's what people's problems with curse words is. That's what people's problems with whatever is. And I actually intentionally purposely give every single reason not to listen to me on purpose. Mm. (laughs) I I will be too loud. I will be southern. I will be, uh, I will curse. I will use absolutely every single reason to make you not listen to me to make the point that much harder to get across to show how strong it actually is in the joke. Right. That's something that actually makes it you know, uh, making a making a shot in pool is nice. Try making it from some, from a whole other table. Yes. And I'm already talking about dark material. I'm already talking about subjects people want to talk about. I'm already doing all of that. So why stop there? Give a, give Make it as hard on yourself as possible. And part of that is saying angry things quietly and saying quiet things angrily and things like that. Like mixing it up enough so that people don't feel they have that control over it. So the actual content has to overtake it.
0: Mm-hmm and one
1: of the things that's a lot of reason why i do that
0: yeah and one of the things that stick out to me and i i wanted to ask you this because so many people really slave over the writing and make sure that they've got every word in place it feels to me and correct me if i'm wrong that you actually put as much effort into the delivery as you do the writing
1: I would say I put more into the delivery than the writing. Okay. Uh, Okay. But um, I actually get a lot of times I get accused of being a writer, and uh, I'm not. I just make it up as I go, and then I remember it the next time, and I just keep doing that. I never actually write out any of my stuff. I very purposely force myself. You can worry about um, when you're you're creating jokes, uh, in my mind. And I don't know. It applies to everybody. or anything like that? Uh, your brain is the factory, and what comes out of your mouth is the product. Now I can I put all the effort that I can into the factory, not into the product. The mm. whole point is, is that I can remake that product about anything at any time at will, and then uh, no one can you know steal your stuff. you uh, could never worried about that kind of stuff. No one can imitate. Like it, it protects you from ever being pretty much uh, guessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh my mother told me she loved the most about theater, when I actually I started as a theater actor, mm-hmm. and one of the things she said she loved the most was the fact that every night something's a little different. And I found that, you know, like more so when I studied like Stanislavski, you know, and it's like, well, if somebody reacts different, then every other line in the entire play should technically be different, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I take a lot of effort to make sure that everything is made up. Fresh in that moment, as as fresh as I can get to it, by not planning out how I'm going to say it beforehand. So that delivery is actually also created based on the rhythm and moment that I'm there. Mm-hmm. So everything should re inspire you every single time because manufacturing emotions is very hard. Yes, uh, to keep that up, you're just going to get bored. So that's why sometimes it's not angry and sometimes it is angry, but like the feelings are still there behind the words and things like that. But I'm right. just mixing it up every single time and trying to do it fresh, right. because otherwise I get bored with it and it doesn't matter. Right. But uh, it can be the same, but a little bit different. You just have to learn how to remanufacture it over and over and over again. Because also, what happens if someone interrupts you? What if someone heckles you? How do you How do you stop and go back? Do you, do you, you can't just act like the emotion is there? You can't act like you weren't derailed that way. So you have to be able to uh, learn how to, I guess, take take off again from any starting point.
2: Mm-hmm. So you
1: have to, you can't tie yourself to any one emotion, mood, or anything like that, or delivery, like because that makes it less organic. And mm-hmm. it needs to be organic every single time, because that, to me, is more important when being an actual like live stand-up and not a recorded stand-up. Mm-hmm. So the writing helps with those things like that, but yeah, uh, in the end, I feel the ability to recreate it under any circumstances is something that a comedian needs to know if they're going to do it for a living.
0: Yeah, and that I that's what really struck me with you because it came out as very natural, and you know, a good comedian when you listen to an album or watch a video and you feel like it's the first time they said it, and and. That's the way I feel about your delivery and the fact that you can not only put so much effort into the delivery, but be able to kind of bob and weave based on what the atmosphere is and what the audience is doing. There's got to be, and I know you've been doing this for quite a few years, but there's got to be some sort of you, you you've gotta have some sort of a connection with the audience. You must be very much in the moment when you get on the stage.
1: You have to be a hundred percent of the moment. That mm. that trust is the only thing that makes it worth it anyways. No mm. one's gonna pay attention otherwise. There was a comedian that I saw in uh when I was I was the House M C at the comedy club in Hong Kong for two years, I think two thousand seven or two thousand nine at takeout comedy club and i would see a comedian that would come there pre-auction called paulo got mm-hmm. and he's a san francisco comedian who's an extremely extremely good crowd work comedian like on par with jimmy pardo
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like one of the best in the industry at yeah, making shit up with the crowd and he just does it at sea mostly and i just fell so in love with that not just like being him of trying to do crowd work like i did try to do crowd work for an entire month straight for mm. like every single set i was bombing and doing crowd work trying desperately to learn it but i just kept throwing myself in the fire again and again and again and again and again and i love that part of trusting myself but also i like having a few weapons in my back pocket like i knowing what the fuck i want to talk about mm. and then i can actually make it up a little bit because i'm not i i like talking about things more serious than uh you know hey what do you do for a living Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wanted that essence of this is unique now between you and me. Mm-hmm. And you only get that if you throw out the idea that you know what you're going to do and just throw it in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, I, you know, such so as, say, for example, like I'm, I don't understand one liner comics that can just remember 500 individual one sentence jokes just to do like a 10 minute set. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't. But it's and, it's and it has to be the same, and it has and then and the delivery is so important within that one sentence that you don't have the ability to start and stop uh, a one night liner, you know, like mm. you just it, it doesn't work that way. It's one line. If they already interrupted it, they already ruined it. The pressure then exceeds the uh, valve of the joke, it's not able to release what it built up. Mm. Um, so it's so like you always have to. That's where. A lot of the tension and rhythm comes from is how much tension are you building with them? Because mm-hmm. when you do it, uh, you're starting a joke, uh, and they don't react or they don't care. You know, you haven't really built much tension, which means your punchline isn't going to release much laughter. Mm-hmm. So you need to make like be able to read. They um, like have that third person ability, looking down on yourself to read the read the room. Mm-hmm. You know, like read the tension in it and see whether it's the right time to release it, mm-hmm. and know how to. Uh, manipulate that beyond just the few sentences you have um, because if you also you know you, you end up with you know i guess no arrows in your quiver or some kind of bullshit metaphor i don't know what that right was about. uh but <laughs> 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 you're sitting up there uh with no ammo and uh, so you gotta it's it's kind of a negotiation and that's how, that's where all that stuff comes in is just manipulating tension like I like steve martin brought it up in his book born standing up that was all about that
2: mm-hmm
0: yeah, and uh, that that was actually the first uh, the first comedy book I read when I decided to get into it, and uh, I was glad. I think it's it called did.
1: like, uh, uh, was it Born Standing Up? Yeah, I think it was called.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. I actually got the audio book, and I was uh, I was glad. Even though I he was the a audiobook fucking book.
1: magician, which is not exactly the same thing. So yeah, <laughs> uh, when he was born standing up, he was born pulling a fucking dead uh, dove out of his jacket. Yeah. <laughs> then he moved on to stand up, and his was prop comedy at best for a long time. So yeah. calm it down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> One of the things you just mentioned uh, was rhythm, and I talked to I've talked to a few comics about this. That when I listen to either your album or any of your live stuff, that there's a, a little bit of a musicality about it and um, even a pentameter or whatever. And um, I, I feel that with yours. Yours was jazz, obviously. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's not the, uh, um, what's, the what's the blues, 334 or something like that. It's not the... Oh, it, I it, have it, a pentameter. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's... There's, there's definitely, um, you know, you're, you're taking, you're taking people on a ride, and you're, you're starting down um, in the, in the low base, and you're taking it up, and there's some staccato, and then man, your finish is just like a big giant symbol of, of every, every, every joke, and I, I really enjoy that. Um, and, and when I say big symbol, I don't mean that you just act out like you're going nuts but your punchlines are punchlines and they definitely you know well, there's when a, there's that...
1: a third step yeah that's that's how you know the majority of comedians young comedians i think their biggest problem is forgetting that uh jokes have three steps they know the rule of three you can tell them a million times but yeah. at the same time if you go like uh you take a joke you know like i look like this and then they go and that's dumb because but that's only two steps. The yeah. third one should have been the then recapping both of those two. And so you actually, all you did was do two steps. Yeah. You needed the third to be able to actually make it a fully rounded joke. And so that's why a lot of times people like, look at you, like they've made a punchline and you, you as an audience member, you're like, okay, what's your point?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And they, that's because they're forgetting the third uh, piece to it. They just haven't extrapolated it yet. And then yeah. they confuse that with like adding tags and then just add a million tags to something thinking that that's, Enough, and it's like no, no, no. You need to actually wrap up what your point was.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, if you don't, if you don't do that, then they're not. It's not really, I think, uh, a, uh, a, a, like a headliner, like a hit, like right. a joke, right? You know, like this what you're really going for in this career is those. They all they all need to do that. Every yeah. single last one, even if some of the jokes are hidden and things like that, that's fine. But you still need that third wrap up in the overall piece. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, you're not relating, relating it to them. You're saying, this is what happened. This is why I think it's funny. And then you need that third. This is why it matters to you. Right. Like that's – and when people don't do that, then they wonder why people don't get their joke. And it's like – it's not that they didn't get it. It's just that they thought there, there there was just more that you needed to do to make them get it. Yeah, they
0: were – They didn't want it. Yeah, they were, they were waiting for the rest. And Yeah. And, and what I like about yours is not only does yours uh, – put the punctuation point on that joke, but it sets up the next one perfectly so that you just flow right into it. And that's one of the things that's I wanted to ask TV. you. One oh, of the things so I good. wanted to ask you was, um, so I listen to a lot of comedy albums and I listen to a lot of first comedy albums uh, versus last comedy albums. And I listen to a lot of folks that put out comedy albums just so that they can put out a comedy album. And a lot of them, you know, They they sound unfinished. They don't sound like the they were ready for the particular album they were going to put out. And both of yours felt like they were totally finished to me, and that you were you you were just going to put some of this stuff to rust uh, because you've been working on it for so long. So let's talk about let's go back to Dead and Gone. Uh, The the uh, I mean the underlying. subject of that is your family died and uh you got divorced. I, I there's I mean there's a lot of stuff there to unfold but yeah you had to have worked on that for a while to get that where you wanted it
1: just yeah, 2 years.
0: 2 years. Uh, so it, both
1: both albums took 2 years worth of development they're done in the exact same timing. The first one was to see if I could or or just to get it off my chest because mm-hmm. I really, you know, like no, everyone kept telling me that you can't do material about this kind of stuff. And I was like, mm, I think I'm going to figure it out. And this is before like Tegna Taro's uh, album about cancer, stuff like that until then no one had done an entire album really. Like, well, not, not like a, a popular one about um, this kind of dark stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, need, I just needed to, to do it to get it off, uh, you know, get it off my off, off chest and to take care of it. Um, and. I spend uh, usually like a year writing then like six months uh, polishing and and working on it. Then I spend six months touring to get it ready and then I record it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, I wait to release it for six months while I write the first half of the second one to be able to keep going from there Mm -hmm. so that I have new stuff to do when the old one comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I'm not like stuck with, you know, trying to do the same material that you're trying to release. Um, But also... um, Part of it is also I, I write a full hour, even though the album's 45 minutes, and then I cut it down uh, so that it's like a 45 total.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because I think it's important also when you're in this writing process, you tend to sometimes forget um, when you're attacking someone, when yeah. you're making when when making fun of someone is, is coming at their expense. Yeah, um, and I purposely remove every joke that I could be mis that I could be perceived as not being the idiot of my story uh-huh uh or sharing something too personal about somebody else and I don't have the right to share you know blah blah so yeah. like um even in those stories even i talk about uh divorce and death and stuff like that i don't bring up any of their names right i don't bring up say like my brother-in-law or anything like that i don't bring up uh like any of the any specific stuff bad stuff that my sister or my uh, ex-wife might have done in the divorce stuff or any of that kind of stuff like I purposely kind of cut them all out. Yeah, like it's um, it's something that's also very important to me to make sure that when you're talking about things like this, you don't make a habit of punching. You know, well, anyone. Yeah, I try, <laughs> I try to just hit myself. So you're um, sensitive. Yeah. You know, well, it's it's you can either be uh, you know, current or timeless. And, yeah. And uh, your 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 anger towards people is usually just current. Yeah. Um, um, you'll usually look back on that and go, "I wish I hadn't." Uh-huh. You know, like said that about him, even though it was like funny, it doesn't necessarily mean that I had the right to, or I bet I could have challenged myself to do better. And it's yeah. something that I also, there are also there are things that I did say on stage. There are some jokes of those that aren't in the albums that people might remember in real life, like me saying, but then I eventually cut them because they're too bitter or uh-huh. they're too, they're attacking. Right. And that's not, that's not what I want to be recorded as, even though I did feel those and I did use stand up to get some of those feelings out.
0: Uh-huh. I, I I was very impressed the way you generalized divorce by the tasks that you had to complete.
1: <laughs> well, it's how people – I wanted to talk about how people view it. Not Nobody cares about me being divorced. Or right, divorced. Yeah. People, but People care about this. I wanted to talk about how frustrating it is to be divorced. Not, yeah. Uh, I, that, and that doesn't require attacking anyone.
0: Uh-huh the Haunted Mansion thing, I just, uh, I, for some reason, that just stuck with me. And I was like, Yeah you know, the courthouse, you know, the, it's just great. I, you know, and, you know, when you listen to comedy a lot, and when, you know, I, I don't consider myself a, a real comedian. But uh, when, when you do comedy, you get kind of jaded, and you, you, you get kind of a callous about you. And it takes a little bit to break through that. And for some reason, I was listening to that when I was driving. And uh, for some reason, that got me uh, to the point where I wasn't driving so well, and so you, know, <laughs> you almost put me off the road with that one. So.
1: Well, I yeah, am. I'm not. I'm not trying to to assassinate people with jokes <laughs> just yet, but I do. I do appreciate you notifying me of the, the business potential
0: yeah. in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You 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 could weaponize it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely something that could be done. So, you've. You've been around, uh, and, and I, I want to talk about the, the different moves that you made, because as you said, when you were in Huntsville, there, there, was, there was nothing you could do as far as comedy was concerned, because there just wasn't that much to do. So you uh, went to Atlanta for a while, and let's talk about the, the time you spent in Atlanta. What, w- what was that like for you, and how did you grow as a comedian in Atlanta?
1: Well, I started there, uh, technically. So, really, when I was uh, when I was going to Georgia Southern University, uh, I, I started to uh, date a lady who uh, there was another guy there in our department who had done stand up before. And she was like, Oh, I like that he did stand up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I've done stand up. Uh, which, of course, I was lying through my fucking teeth. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> then, but I'm one of those people that once I. I lying about something. I have to go do it. Yeah, <laughs> and so then I immediately drove uh, four hours to go to Atlanta to go do a uh, open mic, and I did the. Um, I don't remember what my first one was. Uh, the Roscoe Funny Farm, the original club owned by the now owner of the Laughing Skull, okay. uh, which is a room in the back of a sports bar. Either that, or um, or you know, Twisted Taco Tuesdays, which is another uh, <laughs> room, and that was. Absolutely hilarious to do. In fact, actually, odd enough, in the crowd was this uh, woman I had worked with in high school at Six Flags. It was uh, that one I bombed so hard. Oh no, that was the first one. That was the first one, and I did it, and it was so bad Mm -hmm. that um, so James Brown had just died. Yeah, and uh, I did a joke, and it uh, didn't go well. (sighs) uh, Really bad. And it was that a, a joke about how my family uh, had had a family reunion, but they put up a sign that said, white families only. Uh, <laughs> did not did not go well. Uh, it, was a, it was an all-black room in Atlanta. You know, and I'm from Atlanta and everything like that for the most part. So, this, you know, like I, I, I thought, this would be cool. I did not know how to say that kind of shit. Uh-huh.
2: Um,
1: and everyone was just like very quiet in a super crowded room. And I went, uh, wow, this room is deader than James Brown. Oh, and uh, no. still absolutely nothing. And then I went, uh, hey, you guys want to see my James Brown impression? And then I just crossed my hands over my chest. And, uh, <laughs> that's when the, uh, the DJ, uh, played me off. Yeah. <laughs> and they actually gave me the spot at the Roscoe funny farm. Cause they were like, well, if you've got the balls to do that and <laughs> I'll, but, but, um, but then I, you know, I came then I came back and, uh, and my girlfriend, uh, that, the woman that I'd lied to, saying I did, so yeah, she then became my uh, girlfriend, and she's also the ex-wife in the first sale home. <laughs> um, so we could see how everything worked out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, which I think it was a funny, like little side thing. I remember I, ha- I didn't have a joke instead be about now, you know <laughs> who would take my last name uh to her being Native American. And then, of course, the next guy she married is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy who she definitely took a last name. And I'm like, oh,
0: come on, I didn't even know that was an
1: option.
2: <laughs> like, I, I made a whole joke about this.
1: Um, uh, but either way, like, and she like, invited a whole bunch of friends over without telling me. And it was like, oh, by the way, I've invited 45 friends to come over, and we're all going to watch you do an hour of stand-up. Oh. And, uh, you know, if someone's only done stand-up once, they, they they've done four minutes mm. not 45 yeah and i did 45 minutes for all my friends or whatever and i guess we were just all so high it was fun
2: yeah
1: um <laughs> and you know it's uh, the, the arrogance of youth i guess i uh i, I and then uh, you know i, I set up uh, two weekly shows at the at this bar this bar called oasis in uh next to this place. Oh my god! Now I'm just gonna remember, like college places. But anyway, um, there was this restaurant, Mexican restaurant, those pretty months that everybody drank at, and right next to it there was this creepy bar called Oasis. And I would do every Wednesday, two 30 thirty-minute sets. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind, I've only performed twice before now at this point. Once being inside of a living room with carpet, <laughs> and then I had two every single Wednesday. I do 30 minutes, thirty minutes, then a uh, then a break, then because you know stand-up shows they love intermissions and then i did another uh 30 minutes and i was so banned that the bartender used to say oh, i can't you know i'd be like oh how was it and he'd go like oh, i can't even hear you back here there's no one else in the bar
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what i mean like that kind of bad yeah and i did that between going up to atlanta and i would do uh, thirty two thirty 30 30-minute sets every Wednesday there. and Then I did uh, would do sets at this other place uh as well, and the occasional French show and other stuff like that. So I was doing all that during the week, where I was doing like 30-plus minute shows and stuff, and then would which I had no right to be doing, mm-hmm. Uh and then go up to Atlanta and try to do whatever I could there as well. And so I was doing that for the first year, and so it was only it was only for like a year or so, and then I, that's when I moved to Hong Kong. And I did it there for two years as their house comedian. And then from there, I moved to Chicago. Because I didn't think I was good enough for New York or L.A.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I went to Chicago. And most of my, uh, uh, was a girlfriend, now wife at the time, wanted to do improv. And so I got, she'd been doing it in Hong Kong, fine, whatever, And mm-hmm. go over there, she didn't know second and on. So that's over there, so cool. Um, I moved to Chicago. And then I did it there for about 10 years before... Uh, cut my chops and everything like that. And my agents were like, hey, well, let's get him out to, to L.A. And I tur- toured the entire United States a few times and things like that. So, And now I've been here for, as of October, I'll have been here for five years. Wow.
0: Now, let's talk about your material when you first started because you obviously didn't have the life that happened to you Prior to that. Oh yeah, what, what, my material I, was awful. Yeah, what, I mean, what was it? Was it just? Uh,
1: um, We're well, we trying to be like so. There's um, one. There's one joke that I used. I used to do that was kind of okay, and, and then the internet destroyed it. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, like uh, I know I'm a nerd because I've lost more friends to the phrase "well, actually,"
2: uh-huh.
1: or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was uh, a joke do I do about Hong Kong. So, like, oh, I'm so in Hong Kong. Like, they even have their own terrorist groups they worry about there was the um because there's in indonesia there's the molo islamic liberation front so these milfs are just running around blowing shit up and no one can do a darn thing to stop them but i found a group online called the milf hunters i haven't watched any of their videos but i think they're very well equipped uh, they seem perfectly named um and then i do like an act out of what it'd be like to be like the police chief in jakarta who's lost an eye and complaining about losing an eye to milfs uh-huh. things like that um <laughs> there was one one-liner i thought that i still occasionally do uh from that time which is we we're just thinking about hong kong is that they're 12 hours in the future little yeah. tip about the future everyone's chinese <laughs> and that was uh probably the only like one-liner that i kept from that time um and i remember having like one that was like I'm going to tweet a version of The Diary of Anne Frank. I just know I want to end it with a tweet. BRB, someone's at the door. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) stupid shit. I don't know. Just kind of all over the place. Like, you know, none of it had any balls. Yeah, but that's... You know
0: what? That is good, regular comedy. Um, But the stuff that's happened to you has turned you into something else that is like ascended above that now do you
1: well you have to you had to because I, I remember i remember literally when it was happening and um i would go to those uh open mics uh at, called it, the 710 split uh, right that was the name of the bar or whatever mm-hmm. it was a bowling alley obviously
2: yeah
1: and uh, a friend of mine bill cruz used to run a open mic there and the only rule for the mic was not no old material, only new stuff, all kibbles, no bits, mm-hmm. was the uh, the slogan. And I remember I came in and I tried to do stuff I had written. It was right after my first sister had died and my mom had just uh, told us that, you know, she had an organ transplant and all that shit. And, you know, things were going downhill. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, relationship not going too great. Just the beginning of all this stuff happening. And um, I remember at one point, it just, I was just trying to talk about it and I was like, oh, my fucking sister just died. And I remember saying like, you know, like, some not funny, like, you know, like, fuck God or, or, kind of thing, and then mm-hmm. I was like, well, and then I saw people react bad, and I went, don't worry, I'm looking at things, in a casket could full kind of way. <laughs> and that actually was the very first joke ever written for any of that,
2: uh-huh.
1: it was was that one gut reaction I said to just because I saw everyone look at me sad, and then they laughed, and I went, wait a minute, I can actually be honest about this? Yeah. And it just that, there was that moment, and then I would try and do it, and uh, it's one thing, because the subject material is more memorable, someone could work out a joke uh, about, like, uh, Walmart or something. They could work that joke out 500 times in front of you as another comedian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And nobody would go, God, you got to fucking stop trying to force it. Uh, but, you know, you do the same joke about death, like, in three different ways when you're trying to work on it. And people are like, oh, God, why the fuck wait?" And it's like, because mm-hmm. the problem is, a joke like that done badly really does drain people oh yeah right they, they you know like and so like to get good at doing dark material which i didn't know that was what my one of my talents would be was, mm. it required a lot of experimentation and it required a lot of bumming people to fuck out right and so it's something that uh takes a while and so i actually had a lot of pushback where a lot of people told me don't ever do this again like, you need to stop doing this you need to stop doing this it's gonna work and work and so i just kept i just you know i couldn't bring myself to talk about anything else because mm-hmm. you know, if you watch the Signatara special about it, she sums it up perfectly the way I wish I'd always could have talked about it, was she, she references how she has a joke about bee on the 405, and she keeps saying about how she can't do that joke, and then eventually she ends with that joke, and everyone's like, what the fuck? She's like, that's the point. <laughs> you, know you never, you know, now you see how fucking stupid it is, but uh-huh. yet that was going to be my opener.
2: Yeah. You know? <laughs> like." <laughs>
1: But like that perspective to realize things don't fit with you anymore. My personality changed uh-huh. when all that, like, people died. Like the, the act of recovery was in itself uh, the act of killing off an old part of me, and the old part of me is what made that stuff and it was comfortable doing that stuff. And while I have no, I can now find a reconciliation between the two, and like, and some of the stuff has stayed, I just don't feel like being like that most of the time. Like, yeah. it's just not how I think anymore. Uh-huh. Like, I don't care about. Like, if I brought up the Molo Islamic Liberation, I'm bound to actually say real things about Indonesian politics. And I don't know if yeah. like, what? you know what I mean? Like, that's obviously a different direction than I would have ever taken anything uh-huh. like that before. Um, I just don't think the way that I did before. So it's like trying to put on a pair of clothes that are yours, and someone tells you they're yours, but they're not.
2: You're right.
1: Like, you know, it's like trying to, like, remember why you wore Jinko jeans in high school or why you tried to get your eyebrow pierced or why you thought – you know what I mean? Like, you, if you ever actually tried to think how you thought at a previous time in your life, like, what your thought process was. Like, you remember, like, some of the basics. and things Like, that. Like you remember, like, how you reacted to certain stuff. Mm-hmm. But can you really remember why? And if you do, do you still – do you relate to that? Or are you just remembering? Because yeah. – I would dare say that while well, you may remember what the old you thought or didn't think, because I sincerely doubt you think, you you are capable of thinking like them
2: anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: They're gone. and a, Or rather, it's a timeline where too much time has passed for you to relate.
2: Right.
1: I mean, there'll be times when I wake up and I don't understand why I did what I did the night before. How, mu- how less, much less can I do that for years ago, decades ago? You know, And so that's something that, part of embracing that is realizing you gotta give up the other shit no matter what everyone else tells you and the only way to have become the me that people didn't understand which is one that could recover through the tragedy I went was to also be the me that lets go of what they say when they tell you what is and isn't possible because they don't know the new you
0: right
1: and any more than you do but you right. want to at least find out yeah while they they're, they're comfortable shutting off but that's yeah. also part of uh, I want say vulnerabilities in the eye of the beholder everyone always says you're vulnerable if you share certain shit, but that's only because they're uncomfortable with certain things. Right. They decided that something is hard to share. You didn't decide that. You were the one who just told them. Right. So obviously right. you don't agree, it's, but yet they don't think of it that
0: way. Yeah. It's their own vulnerability. How right. are you able to, you, you know, from talking to you, it, it feels to me like you are uh, in a really good place right now. And, um, or at least in a better place than you were when you recorded Dead and Gone. Um, can There's no you, other place worth being. Can you still go back um, and, like you said, can you recreate your feelings and your reactions and bring that into something new? Oh, yeah, they come, back in, new?
1: they come back in literally a second. Okay. The second any of it okay. comes up in my mind. Like it happens almost every, every single day. It's the only difference is the reason why I'm in a better place is not because I feel any different. Mm-hmm. I actually miss them every single day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I still, every single day, think about it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: nothing I can ever get rid of. But the difference is I made a promise. And it's uh, very simple. For every smile taken from me, I would make two more. Mm-hmm. So every time you think of one of them, instead of thinking I'm sad, I think of a way to make two other people happy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and that's all that matters mm-hmm. or, and sometimes the smile can even be my own but I do only need to make at least two more mm-hmm. so then I'm showing life how futile it is to try to stop me Right. so it doesn't stop and also like on the, on the Buddhist level my father being a Buddhist priest myself being Buddhist as well like, oversimplification but without desire there is no suffering mm-hmm. and so every time I have any suffering I try to think about what that desire was and if it was one of them I find ways that I could replace it but it doesn't change that I have the want right that still remains, and so I still think of all of those things. I just then have other places to go from there instead of dwell. So it's really, nothing's changed, but yet everything has, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Do it's you just th- that your starting, your starting point has still never changed. It's really that it's now just a point instead of uh, like a hole. Right.
0: Do you think you would have um, healed in the way that you did if you hadn't uh, written Dead and Gone?
1: No. No, if I had not been forced to, so like, uh, if all those thoughts were in my head, it would have done me no good. Okay. Because you don't take responsibility for them, and there, every single one of those jokes has five hundred versions of them where I sound awful, like I sound like a bad person. Yeah. Like, okay. I was, oh, I can see. It, I can like,
0: see how that could happen. Yeah.
1: But part of it—that's part of how I incorporated all of my joke writing. Now that's part of—is that's what makes me who I am now—is because I trust mm-hmm. myself to be as dark and evil as I want. But part of that is trusting also that I will grow and learn, and the only way to do that because mm-hmm. uh, thoughts, thoughts you don't take responsibility for. Right. But speech, speech you have to take responsibility for because you said that shit and everybody heard it, mm-hmm. and I can do that in mass because I was tired also trying to talk about my pain with people. And everyone had some kind of goddamn opinion. I always feel like they have to say something back. And the whole point of it was just to get it out so I could hear how it sounded.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so by doing that on stage, I avoided the chance of any of them to all individually come up to me and go, this is what I thought of what you said. You should do this. You should do that. By doing it all in a stand-up. It actually forces me to take responsibility, forces me to understand how it sounds. Well, also, meaning I don't have to listen to everybody's goddamn opinion on it. I can yeah. see it on my face. Yeah. And I can I can figure out, you know, like you know, when somebody tells you, oh, your friend gave you bad advice or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, so then why why did you think I was asking advice? I was just venting. Mm. Like, you can why did you, you know? And then they get mad if you don't want it. And it's like, because I just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure I'm not psycho. Yeah.
2: That's
1: all I, wanted. <laughs> I was just I just wanted it to help, and I wanted to make sure you weren't going to commit me after I said it. I don't need you to to fix it. Um, and stand-up provided a very unique setting for that. so while mm-hmm. what it is not and is, and will never be a a replacement for therapy, which I also went through. It was therapeutic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and that's a very important distinction to make. That stand-up is anybody who has stand-up is therapy probably hasn't been to therapy. you, know, you just you're confusing uh, like advice and or or something like that with massage. Like you need to actually, you know, buying something online for the rush of feeling good is, is a way that some people treat their pain and problem, but then it's still just a way of dealing with it by it yeah. giving yourself another want, another yeah. desire, yeah. but that still creates more suffering later. You have mm-hmm. to address the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. And the only way to address that was to really rip everything out and take responsibility for all of it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I've, um, a couple things came out of what you said. Uh, well, one of the things is that, um, I w- w- we we moved from so you're South, cutting in a little bit oh we moved from South Bend and um and I've been living out of suitcases for almost three months now, and I've realized I don't need anything else and yet I've got eighty percent of my clothing and stuff in um, storage right now, and I'm thinking about the fact that you know what I don't need it. And maybe I won't even use it when I get out. Maybe I'll sell it. Maybe I'll do something with it, and and really live a minimalist life. Maybe you could
1: default life. on your storage unit, and then it could be part of Storage Wars.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But and the other thing is, is you talked about being able to go back and feel that feeling that was that that was years ago. I I've got and it's it's totally. Um, definitely not as devastating as what you went through. But, you know, as a kid, I was, you know, I'm, I'm six, five, and I grew really fast. And uh, my mom always bought me um, clothes that, Either said irregular or defect um, because we we were on the edge of poor. We weren't, we weren't quite there, but we oh, were. Oh yeah, on the you, were, edge.
1: you were in that uh, that, that Sears Outlet, Burlidge and Code Factory yes. level. Yeah. No, and the, then the, the Huntsville Sears Outlet was where I went to. Basically, it was in Gunnersville or, or uh, maybe just Madison County, but no, I was it was in the uh, the same boat, my friend.
0: Yeah, and but my mom. So my mom would always let my pants, you know, get up to, like, capri level um, before not, not giving me new pants, but actually um, uh, cutting the um, bottoms off my old blue jeans and sewing them on uh, the bottom and calling them a ruffle. And, and then the other thing is is she got me one of those irregular shirts, and it was an Indy 500 shirt. This was when I was in seventh grade. And it was supposed to say shell on it because that's what was on the. Uh, the I you are
1: going to say like 99 or something rate. like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but the S was uh, sewn into the sleeve. So it said hell instead. And I went to a very, very small town, very, um, very white conservative school. And she gave me that shirt. And I'm like, well, I can't wear that to school. And she said, you, you can work to school, it's fine, because the S is there in the in, in, the, uh, in the stitching. And, you know, I went there and I got in trouble. And um, the principal said, you can't wear that shirt anymore. And I said to the principal, can you please give me a note to give to my mom, because she's going to keep yeah. making me wear it. And I made a joke out of that. But the funny thing is, is, I hadn't thought about that for years and years and years. And when I brought it all back, the all the all, all the hives came out and uh, the the sweating and i i all all of a sudden became uh going through puberty again and when you let yourself immerse yourself back into it then you can really write some decent stuff and and bring some good stuff out of it but it, it it's painful and, <laughs> and it's not fun
1: well it's painful only well the same way we have a bruise that you, you're pushing it and it hurts but you know if you push it enough you get used to it and you don't
0: yeah.
2: feel yeah. it anymore Yeah. And
1: so you haven't spent maybe enough time and now I have no right to tell you how much time you should or shouldn't but I'm saying if you, if you want to learn to control uh, to control it a little bit more it just requires that exposure right. it doesn't mean you have to have it nobody has to have it people can there, there is such a thing as too much pain to be able to and never you know, to never want to see again of yeah. everything so I, I would never dare to speak on someone else's you know you never know what's in somebody else's wallet Right, But it's something that um, I spent so much time wallowing in there mm-hmm. that um, it became something I would hit people with. That it was one of those, like, everyone's like, oh, you don't want And then the more people told me not to share it, I'm like, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to make all of you fuckers deal with this. And then the more I learned how to change it towards something that made them understand how ridiculous it was, and make them finally understand and go, okay, that is pretty fucked up. But I'm, but not just like in that way, in the sad way, but in the like, are you serious? They gave you a Japanese scroll, your brother's face? Who sent somebody sheet music? Like things like that that uh-huh. made me go like, you see, that's what I'm dealing with. It's not, I wasn't trying to say I'm sad. I'm trying to say you people are weird yeah. about <laughs> me letting me be sad. You're not, I'm not trying to make you feel sad. I don't want you to feel like that. I don't want you to even know them. I'm not even going to tell you about them. But I need to get off my chest how ridiculous the way some of you fuckers are dealing with this. I just got to get out of it. Like, it just needed to see. So I'll spend as much time in here until you tell me that you are comfortable with this shit. I'm going to keep pushing on this fucking bruise until you are comfortable with it. Because it's my, you know, like, it's like the audacity. And, And honestly, if people hadn't pushed back, I may not have tried to push so hard on it.
0: Yeah 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 well that's uh that's one way to go about it hey uh two years in hong kong did you did you learn any tricks there that you uh wouldn't have learned if you were in the states
1: yeah uh from uh well one hosting and two the 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 crowd work stuff from Polygon, uh, forcing myself to jump in Mm -hmm. like exposing different because i saw ted alexandro and uh and Paula Ghana and uh is it Tom something? He was on America's Got Talent a couple years ago. Whatever. Cotter? Um yeah, Tom Connor. Yeah. And uh I worked with those guys enough where uh you know, they probably don't you know, know anything about me or anything like that. But it was something that just watching them just like open my also opened my eyes to the first time like shitty bookers and stuff like that like that make like you know the the hybrid booker performer that makes you watch their set before you can perform at their club um <laughs> kind of weird stuff um and i don't even want to get on that big rant of a list of all those fucking people because they're all awful but um it's one of those uh It taught me, it did teach me a whole lot. Also, I got a lot of great friends. Like, I can Mm. be perfectly honest. Like, I mean, like, you know, because like, Atlanta didn't really have like, it wasn't really part of the community. While there, it's like, you know, I remember like Chris Musny and Ryan Hynek, Nick Milms, and a few other people that were really good uh, friends. I get to know, like where I actually got to know what, what the idea was like to hang out with other comedians. I didn't have that mm-hmm. before, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, these are probably, you know, these people aren't going to make it, aren't going to really talk to anybody or anything like that. But it doesn't matter. It didn't, what mattered matter. was being able to feel like a part of a community for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also the respect for, you know, uh, seeing other people, masters at work.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Hong Kong audiences uh, tend to know how to behave in a comedy club more than uh, U.S. audiences, am I right?
1: Well, actually, if, if it was uh, Hong Kong or mainly Chinese people, they actually wouldn't laugh because it was considered rude, uh-huh. um, but uh, the majority of the crowd was... So variable. This is also what taught me another main thing is I, I have almost no cultural references in most of my jokes. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because Hong Kong people would never get it. Yeah. And so one night it's all British, one next night it's all Taiwanese, the next night it's half this, half that. It's like it's the audience range so much
2: mm-hmm.
1: that you gained nothing from, you know, like making an I love Lucy reference. Like yeah. you don't make jokes about the train. You don't make, you know what I mean? Like you just you learn I learned how to write without references Mm. which I I feel makes it much easier to access your comedy
0: right your type of comedy is let's talk about American comedy audiences and the fact that they know nothing about the comic that is performing when they buy a ticket sometimes and your style is obviously a little bit more heady um Uh uh look you know you've got the angry overtones and and all that do you have ways to adjust to the folks that came in and wanted to see carrot top
1: yeah okay. yeah i uh, I just start a little bit different, but also i have i, I generally don't uh since you know I things's been a long of on those albums I don't jump in on that like right now I'm doing uh mostly jokes about um my dad passing away. And, mm. but also as a joke for the pandemic, one thing I do is I open up and go, uh, I'm glad you guys made it all, all made it out here in the middle of this opioid epidemic. <laughs> and I, I do jokes about the opioid epidemic uh-huh. during the pandemic yeah. just to like gauge where they're at. Wasn't going to make <laughs> me any less, uh, anything else, but then it all just boils into a story of a time when a girlfriend of my dad tried to shoot herself and the dog knocked a gun out of her hand. But uh-huh. she had tried to OD by taking blood pressure medications. So she couldn't bleed because she took all the blood pressure medication. So then she ended <laughs> up sitting there with, uh, you know, like two holes that can't bleed while she's waiting on the cops to come. Uh-huh. And it's something uh-huh. that, um, and the dog's just sitting there wanting to play. And so it's one of those like. <laughs> Just trying to, you know, I can I can just do normal other jokes. I don't know other than normal that they're my normal, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to kind of see where they're at. Then I generally what I do is I generally get darker as I go along and go, mm, do you want it? Uh-huh. Do you want? It? And then I can either switch into other stuff, like the alone stuff or the angry stuff or the divorce stuff. I don't have to go for the death stuff every time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, right. I, can, I can do whatever. I, I can do crowd work the entire time. I've been doing this long enough, where none of that phases me. So yeah, um, it's something where I have the ability to adjust any crowd at this point, you have to be able to.
0: Yeah. I think the anger management joke could go with just about any crowd. I love that. The, um, yeah, most,
1: most of the anger stuff, like, also saying, like, I've never applied for a job happy. Yeah. Stuff like that. That generally gets with <laughs> just about everybody.
0: So do you have anything uh, in the works? I mean, you've been in L.A. for a little while. Do you have some things going on?
1: Well, I have um, another um, uh, Comedy Center voiceover that I just did um, for um, Tim Barnes is a writer on uh, – what was it? Uh, Late Night with Larry Wilmore. He's also for like writer for Jim Fallon, and now he's uh, writing center for Comic Central. That I'm, I'm the voice of the villain.
2: Oh, okay. And that of a
1: uh, billionaire villain. Um, and then uh, I did another one a little while ago, so I'm doing like, that voice acting. And I'm just working on my third album because I threw a lot of it away. Uh, a little while ago before the pandemic and so then I've got a because I was working on some other stuff and I didn't like it so I threw it away to go with uh, some different subjects and I'm actually trying to teach myself how to uh, write uh, about anxiety this next one. Oh, uh, okay. One of the ones I'm going to talk about on top of uh, 20 minutes I have on like my dad passing and like the funeral home being weird and offering me like his old body parts and stuff mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and then um, and it's actually you know, just kind of all over the place uh, but I I want to I want to really focus the third one on like Anxiety and depression and stuff uh-huh. like that. So that's that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Because I had like a, you know the pandemic kind of just like set me back with a whole rewrite, and mm-hmm. I finally realized what I really kind of gained from him passing was my last being my last name was empathy,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that uh, kind of changes what I wanted to write about. So right, threw away a whole bunch of stuff and writing some new stuff. That's pretty much it for right now.
0: Right. So the last question I want to ask you because uh, uh, in and learning about your, your your more more zen attitude and all that. And you, you, you have to know that I am not just saying this because I'm talking to you right now and I'm going to be uh, blowing compliments up your ass, but I just want to ask you, um, when you know that you are a better performer and better writer, than some of the people that are getting Netflix specials. How do you deal with that?
1: Well, well I feel like um, any man who, I mean, two people can climb a mountain. You know, we're all climbing the same mountain of performance. The fact is, I just have a different summit. So I wasn't expecting to see him If their summit was a Netflix special, God bless them, that's never been mine. Mm-hmm. Mine has actually been to be... Like people, like I'm not trying to compare myself in any way shape or fashion because I'm nowhere near that, that leveling. But like how George Cron, Richard Pryor, people like that. that actually, even even Kevin James and some, or some uh, some other people would like say, like, what a joke makes you think of your life differently and mm-hmm. actually disarms some of the pain in your life. That's what I'm shooting for. That's my summit. So I don't really care what these guys do or don't get
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh doesn't make me feel anything because the same way that I, I i don't believe that t-pain is mad when kids pop comes out you know what i mean like it's yeah. obviously a different audience
2: mm-hmm. if
1: they want that then god bless them i'm not here for that i'm here for the long haul i'm here for stand-up only i'm not here for like the recurring role in tv or the other stuff i want to do just good well-written stand-up that disarms people's pain mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that is something that these guys aren't doing and I don't think find any competition in them anyway. So my goals are so totally separate from them, I don't even think about it at all. It's one thing actually moving to L.A. probably did most for me. It completely stripped me of any idea of comparing myself to others when I realized you got to bring your own seat to the table. Mm -hmm. And I realized how unique I was at what I do. Mm -hmm. So why would I want anything that they have? Yeah, they don't want anything about, you know, like I'm sure they have lots of things that they want. I have, like, have the actual respect that I get from people, even though I'm underground and unknown, idea uh, the experience that I have. And they wouldn't want to probably have spent the months and years that they took learning certain skills and things like that. I don't think they want to do any of that. But I'm mm-hmm. sure they would want the result. Yeah. And so, you know, they spent months and years trying to get an ampoule special, and they got it. So why can I possibly want it when I put no effort toward getting it? Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's that's um a different person's race. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it reminds me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever run into Stuart Huff, uh, in your travels, but uh, he's got a similar attitude, and uh, he's more of a ph- philosophical guy. And he just he just wants to be on the road doing comedy, and he's had a chance to do some sitcoms and stuff like that, and he just doesn't want to do it. And that's uh, the that, it, it's it's good to be able to know where you want to be.
1: Well, I just know what I care about, and if I wanted what they have, um, that's just more desire, which leads me to more suffering. So I mm-hmm. want give a shit. God bless them. Great. Well,
0: I'm going to end with a little six degrees of separation, because when I was uh, uh, studying you online, I found an article that a guy named jeff harrell wrote in the south bend tribune about you because he was so impressed with you it it's it's unusual for him to write about comedians because he's a music guy but uh he wrote a very nice article when you performed there in 2015 and uh he is actually um a, a guy that played with a Band there in South Bend. It was uh, called uh, the Motown Machine, formerly the Motown Dance Party, that had one of the original uh, Motown drummers, uh, Billy Sticks Nicks, uh, playing for him. And he just passed a few years ago. But he was also the percussion guy for the Allman Brothers. And uh, oh, Super cool guy, and one of the smartest guys I've ever met. I mean, he knows everything about everything. and uh, you'd remember him if you saw him because he's he's huge. I mean he he makes me look like a little guy. And uh, but he wrote a very nice article about you, and I was just thinking, oh man, Jeff is so cool. and you know he's he's uh, writing about Sean, and this is th- this interview just seems like kismet. It seems like something that should happen now. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you very much,
2: man, for taking the time.